0: Yeah, did you, hear, uh, did you hear that Charlie Brown's given up his job as, a, as being a cartoon? Nope. He's sick of working for Peanuts.
1: Have you ever wanted to kick through a set of saloon doors, sit at a thick, dark wooden bar with your dog at your side, and as your ass are the stool, A beady-eyed bartender, mean-looking bartender, sends a beautiful shot your way of bourbon, of course, along the 10-metre bar, only to end up perfectly in your grasp without spilling a single drop. Mitch, I think about this quite a lot. And as a man who's lived in America, the
0: US of A, this must have happened a couple of times, no? Mate, every day. You know, it was like when I walked in there with my spurs on and, you know, my cowboy boots and everything. Yeah, absolutely, man, absolutely. What did you think I did over there, by the way? (laughs) That's a very good question. I'm not sure. You've never actually explained it properly, to be fair. Yeah, to be fair, I can't tell you that much. I'd have to kill you. But yes, people, welcome. Here is another episode. And this week, we go stateside to talk about American whiskey. Uh, the stuff that was inspired by us Scots, but then the Americans went up and, and messed up the spelling of it, right?
1: That's it, man. Look, I uh, I love going around different countries, understanding and chatting about different whiskies and things like that. Um but do you know what? We 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 did our American not our American, we did our Indian whiskey episode, we did our world whiskey episode. Uh I, I feel like we've touched on, you know, Australian and Taiwanese whiskies in a slight oversight perhaps, but we've definitely jumped on American whiskey and we've we've skipped a little bit over that in the past, Mitch, you and I have. And maybe it's because we're not as passionate about it. Maybe it's because we're not as interested. However, as a young fella uh, working in the bars and here in Scotland, especially, you know, I had a bit of a soft spot for American whiskey and we, you and I, we did a little bit of work as well on Bullet Bourbon in the past too. Mm -hmm. It must be said that that Scotch took over, it became our jobs um, But we felt it would be nice to go back and revisit American whiskey So I've pulled out a wee Angel's Envy And this evening um, we have the fabulous Tracy Franklin uh, to keep us right I think that's, uh, I'm I'm really excited about it mate to be honest And it's something that
0: um, I, I think it's interesting right because you look at Scotland And you look at sort of our generation when we were growing up and everyone's interaction with whiskey was Jack Daniels. I mean, I don't know about you, but everyone that I knew was drinking Jack Daniels when it came to whiskey. Um, and that was definitely something that I was doing that started off my whiskey journey. Mm. I, I think I just got, I got to the point where I just got sick of the stuff. It became way too, too sweet. Uh, it just, you know, I was putting coke in it all the time. And I think I had a really bad experience one new year. That completely put me off it. And I'm like, nah, I'm done. I'm, I'm totally done with Jack Daniels. But then for me, when it came to American whiskey, where I kind of found my love for it again was when I got introduced to an old-fashioned.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that kind of really sort of started up my interest with it, right?
1: Yeah, not no fair. I mean, I, I as a young guy, I did enjoy Jack and Coke. What I did do, mate, was, you might not know this about me, actually worked at the Witherspoons in Kirkcaldy, of all places, the Robert Nairn.
0: You, you know put that on your
1: CV, mate. It's on there. Yeah, 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 loud and proud.
0: <laughs> and
1: the thing was about Witherspoons at this time was that they had totally discarded. They didn't stock Bacardi, and they didn't stock Jack Daniels. They did a massive fallout. So the two products they stopped were Jim Beam and Havana. Instead of those two brands. So my exposure to bourbon, and they had Jim Beam, and it was the black one. And at that time, it was an eight-year-old, um, and it was delicious. I loved it, and, and I used to drink it on ice. So funnily enough, as an 18- or a 19-year-old, I actually did quite like bourbon as it was. Then,
0: I, th- I think when you go back to that point in time when we were drinking American whiskeys, that was pretty much all that was available to us, right? It was Jack Daniels. It was Jim Beam. There was maybe a Maker's Mark kicking about here and there. But there wasn't really what you have today, right? Which is what we're going to go into with Tracy. We're going to talk about this kind of craft distilling that's going on, the the explosion of American whiskeys. And I know for me, when I went to the US in 2010, it blew my mind to see this whole craft movement that was going on. I remember the first distillery I I went to, which was in Milwaukee, believe it or not. And it was the Great Lakes uh, distillery there. And I just remember going into this place and just thinking like, holy shit, this, this is so small. These guys, are, you know, the operation mm-hmm. is tiny. It's just in this hangar, uh, downtown Milwaukee. And, you know, it, not that that's a bad thing. I just came from from Scotland and and, and all these traditional distilleries mm-hmm. that I was used to being around. It just hundreds of money. years
1: of history because none of the new distilleries that you see today were knocking about at that point. You know, Aaron, when you left, was probably one of the newest distilleries in Scotland at that point, right? 100%.
0: 100%. Yeah.
1: Mate. So new distilleries lots of new distilleries kicking off in America when you arrived uh, 10 or 15 years ago whenever it was. Um American whiskey though mate we're going to have a little nip tonight what are you drinking?
0: I well I got a nice little um Woodford Reserve kit sent to me. I know you don't like it when I talk about all the freebies that I get daz but I'm going to talk I'm about i'm actually quite upset about this <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um woodford have uh team they teamed up with the Bafters, which i think was just on well it was just on sunday and they sent this amazing kit we're gonna we'll, we'll post it on our our instagram page yeah, so you yeah. guys can can see it but it was it was absolutely stunning like when it arrived it blew me away uh obviously a bottle of woodford in there and then this nice um bottle of bitters glass ice cube tray popcorn Uh, amazing presentation on the package so yeah I'm sipping on a wee uh, old-fashioned courtesy of uh, Woodford Reserve.
1: A very nice whiskey Woodford Reserve I always remember many many years ago one of my first training sessions on American whiskey was with a gentleman called Chris Morris who was the master distiller at the distillery over there and yeah uh, I remember we tasted three or four different expressions from Woodford and they make very, very good whiskey. There's no question about wood for its quality.
0: What about you, mate? What are you sipping on
1: um, I'm on the uncle nearest the is it 1856 premium, so it's the 50 percent stuff. It's lovely mate.' It's really, really nice. It's actually very fruity. You know sometimes yeah. I think with bourbon, and I've heard this a lot, especially from scotch drinkers is that you know American whiskies can be a bit one but one dimensional, uh, too too much focus on the wood, uh, but this is very fruity. It's got those lovely vanilla qualities, those lovely honey notes that you do get from American oak. But it's got some lovely apricot notes as well, a little bit of spice in there. So
0: I was really impressed on how smooth it is. But we're going to get into that with Tracy. So let's not steal our own thunder here, Daz. Mm, yeah, let's not get ahead of ourselves. So, Mitch, um, before we get into the Tracy
1: convo, good to chat about what's in your glass. What has been happening this week? Have you been
0: busy? Yeah, mate, it's been, a uh, well, yeah. <laughs> last couple of weeks so i think it's been two weeks since we've uh, we've recorded mm. anything actually it's been nuts i i jumped in a camper van and i went all the way down to see my friends at Aber falls nice. down in north wales yeah and uh yeah they um, they looked after me down there i had an amazing visit to their distillery um i did the the, the fastest zip line in europe as well which is really cool it's going to be a video dropping very soon on that. But, yeah, I was with our friend uh, Craig Holmes as well because, you know, I had to have our token Welsh friend down there. So yeah. he joined me down there. And, uh, yeah, we drank a load of good whiskey down at Abra Falls. And uh, they actually they have a, like a little gin lab there as well. So we made our own gin. And, yeah, it's it such a good experience down there. Highly recommend anyone going down to North Wales. Stop into the Abra Falls distillery. Check it out. Um, yeah, mate, so I did that. drove all the way down, drove back again, literally got out. Uh, of the car up in scotland and jumped on a plane to lisbon and uh i just got back from lisbon today so kind of been jet-setting mate Bit of, uh, nice. two, two countries in the last week or so
1: yeah mate i went up to cooper a couple of weekends ago for the fife whiskey festival
0: oh yeah how was that
1: mate it was good really good bumped into a couple of your pals you did i did <laughs> yeah yeah and they were telling me all about, the about that that, that <laughs> you've been plowing them full with so um it was, no, it was really good, mate. I think the guys did a, a brilliant job and congratulations to them, you know, for putting on something that, uh, yeah, uh, it, it did go ahead. I think two years ago, just as lockdown came in, I think their last festival was mid-February uh, 2019, is it? Uh, and, and this is their first event since. So, yeah, they did a, a really, really nice job and it was good to see people again. You know, I, I did go to the Glasgow Whiskey Festival not, not so long ago prior to that. Uh, but it was it was really really good. First time I've been at the Fife Whiskey Festival, uh, and as a fifer, of course, uh, it's essential that you and I make it along there at some point together, Absolutely. perhaps. And maybe maybe next year we go along and uh, blast a wee uh, blast a wee episode out.
0: So so two questions for you about it. Firstly, mm-hmm. how did the fable go down? And mm-hmm. secondly, how did your uh, your newfound stardom as being a podcaster go down?
1: A few people came up to me and and told me that they listened to the show and. I was it kind of took me aback a little bit I'm not being funny one of the guys actually pointed at me and was like are you that guy from the podcast <laughs> <laughs> which made me giggle but no it was really good mate and the and fable went down really well so we just launched a blended malt um currently exclusive in Selfridges which is really cool and, and that's gone down really really well but I was rubbing shoulders Mitch um with a couple of tiktokers recently oh, really? um mm-hmm. the tiktokers um, a lady, love uh, a lovely lady um, called Devry Brin, who is a, a who's become a friend of mine, is is a TikToker, and um, she introduced me to one of her friends, Skylar Samuels, who's like an actress. Um, so I did a couple of tastings, two separate ones, one for Devry and one for Skylar, uh, over the last couple of weeks as well, which has been quite fun. Um, and maybe a maybe a, a lifestyle that you're more accustomed to having lived in uh, California in the past. Um, but it was, it was loads of fun, and the guys really enjoyed the whiskies and stuff, which was super cool. So, yeah, bit of whisky shows, a little bit of tasting here and there. Um, and I went to London, actually. I went down to Black Rock. Uh, I, I went down to see Ryan Chetty's new bar, uh, Bar Termini and places like that down in London over
0: the last week. That oh, was class,
1: mate. Really good, day. I mean, I love London for those whisky venues.
0: Did I see that you're with our friend Baz, a.k.a. Firstborn as well?
1: I was with the Firstborn. I was. Uh,
0: Mm-hmm. so if anyone knows barry wilson then you'll know he's a bit of a hairy guy so hence the reason we call him firstborn what's been happening in the world of whiskey since we last caught up absolutely nothing mate and you know why <laughs> it's because it's because we've been so busy people yeah. are like well there's no point in putting out any news because you know they might not do a podcast on it that's been a bit quiet hasn't it it's been super quiet I mean I think the only thing that that it's not even really whiskey news but it's something that I want to pick up with you on because I know this is probably close to your heart is the discovery of the the Shackleton endurance boat which was unbelievable to see
1: yeah did you see the video footage
0: yeah incredible yeah
1: I mean do you know the thing is um so I, I obviously worked for White Mackay for five years or just over five years and um, Richard Patterson was really, really close to this project.
0: So wait, wait, al- Daz, Daz just, just rewind a little bit, because if mm-hmm. people are listening, and they don't know about the Shackleton whiskey. Yeah. we have lost them here. So okay. rewind and tell everyone about the, the discovery of that.
1: Okay. So many, many years ago,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: nah, in, the, in the early 1900s, um, 1909, uh, 1910, the Nimrod Expedition, had gone out to the Antarctic and come back, and those guys had ordered twenty-five cases of McKinley's rare old Highland whiskey, and and that whiskey was bought by Shackleton himself to bolster the spirits of the sailors on that particular ship. Now those guys uh, came back on the Nimrod, but they did leave some whiskeys under the hut. They actually left three cases of whiskey and two cases of brandy under the hut. Uh, the endurance expedition was was about you know four or five six years after that and the endurance expedition of course was the ill-fated expedition in which Shackleton was pretty much immortalized you know through his leadership through his ability to sort of I guess face adversity uh, and and deal with it in a pretty admirable way you know uh, leaving the ship leaving the sailors going away and then coming back to rescue them all. And no man was left behind. And, and that story will live forever. And, and there'll be movies made about it and, and all that kind of stuff. So the Shackleton story is, is obviously something that's massively steeped in, in British culture as a, you know, amazing adventurer. So under the abandoned hut, Antarctic expeditionists um, had, had basically discovered these bottles um, and carefully brought them out from where they were. And over a period of weeks and months, managed to sort of thaw them out very, very carefully. And after that, because White and Mackay were the owners of the McKinley's brand, after that, they'd given a couple of samples to Richard Patterson to explore, to look at, to understand exactly what was going on so that he could tell the story of of what these whiskies actually were. Now, there were a few things that happened. He obviously knows them. Uh, I think they were drawn from syringes through the cork. I think that's how the whiskey was actually extracted. He was only given a couple of samples. Um, And then what they were able to do was nose and and, and sort of sample and Richard would pass his comments and things. And then they were able to pass them through some, you know, gas chromatography and and things like that. And through that, what they were able to do was to identify some of the qualities that were within that whiskey. So one thing that stood out was they were able to identify where the peated element came from. And that peated element uh, was identified as Orcadian peat. Uh, and they felt that, you know, very comfortably that that was probably Highland Park that was in that. Uh, so there was a combination of whiskies that had come together to create that. So there were a couple of things that came out of it. Uh, Richard wanted to obviously recreate a whiskey um, in that style with the information that he had. And he did that brilliantly. And that whiskey was known as the, the Shackleton McKinley's Old Highland Rare or Old Rare Highland. And it was known as a discovery. It was cool to follow. I mean, I was kind of part of it, I suppose. It was so interesting to see that story come to life on the news just over the last few days, because it's probably one of the most significant shipwrecks found, certainly within the last 50 or 60 years. What was quite surprised at was the condition of the boat. It I, looks um, immac- Amazing. It like, looks immaculate. I
0: yeah. mean, it looks like it, it sank a week ago, you know. Yeah. And, and what we're we talking over 130 years ago, I think it was, yeah. right about there. Yeah,
1: 1914, 1915 was the expedition,
0: so yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I looked at it. If, if you're, you're listening to this and you, you haven't seen this yet, just Google Shackleton Endurance uh, shipwreck and you'll see the footage, it'll come up straight away. It's, it's insane. What
1: I'm interested to know, based on the fact that the whiskeys that they found under the hut after the Nimrod expedition... I'd be curious to know what whiskies are left on the boat. Right. Because there must be a few cases of some good stuff on there, right?
0: Anyway, we're completely off subject here. This meant to be yeah. about American whiskey. We've been chatting about the Antarctic and Shackleton. Um, so let's get back into this because Tracy is gonna get us right into American whiskey. At yeah. The end of the day, we're two Scottish guys. Um, and for us talking about American whiskey, we didn't feel that made sense. So we wanted to bring someone in who's really kind of living it and breathing it. Uh, So we brought in my good friend, Tracy Franklin, who I caught up with a few weeks ago to chat about all things American whiskey and talk about her new job as a distiller. All right, (laughs) Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for being on here.
2: Thank you. I'm absolutely honored to be on. I've been listening to the show and just been thinking, when is Mitch going to talk to me? Like, I know I think he likes me. (laughs) <laughs> When's
0: he going to ask me to be on? <laughs> I know it's been way too long, but I mean, the cool thing about this is we get to hang out and you get to be on the show. So it's a, it's a double bonus for me. So anyone who's listening who hasn't met Tracy before or doesn't know who she is, Tracy, I'm going to give you a quick intro and you can correct me on all the mistakes here. But Tracy's history goes back to uh, being an actress. She was on Broadway. She worked for Disney, did some crazy stuff. Uh, Along the way, bartending came into it. And that's where I think you kind of found your passion for for booze and kind of alcohol. Following on from that, you start up your own whiskey company uh, with our good friend, uh, Jennifer Wren. uh, And then from there, you dabbled a little bit in rum. And then I came along and swooped you up for Glenfiddich and you became a Glenfiddich ambassador and we worked together for, I think it was maybe four amazing years. Three, almost together. four years, yeah. And now you're doing something absolutely incredible, uh, training to be a distiller, which is yes. unbelievable over in the US. So you're making this stuff every single day.
2: Yes, I mean right now I am doing a lot of studying and making this stuff twice a week. How about that? (laughs) So I am the first apprentice in the Nearest and Jack Advancement Initiative. It's a three pronged program created by Uncle Nearest and Jack Daniels to increase diversity in the whiskey industry. So they are creating a school of distillation at a junior college. They are working on a business incubation program. They actually use Dinor distilleries out of uh, Minneapolis. And the third prong is the Leadership Acceleration Program, so I'm in that. They basically are finding people who are already in the whiskey industry, people of color who are looking to move up to a higher position. And my honestly, it's not even a higher position necessarily in, in my case. I was just got promoted to National Ambassador for Glenn Fittick when they came along and said, what is your dream job? And I said, I really would love to run a distillery and to create more distillers and really empower and support people who maybe haven't seen themselves in the whiskey industry before. And they said, yeah, you're hired. I mean, a little more than that, but (laughs) I got hired. And then it was me figuring out what is it that I need? Where are the holes in my knowledge and my experience? And how can I uh, fill those in? So I've been traveling throughout the United States to, to different distilleries and studying with distillers whom I have looked up to for a long time. I'm also studying for my diploma in distillation from the Institute of Bring and Distilling. We're in Scotland with you. And I've done my WSET, like forklift training, house of, like, whatever I can do to ensure that I am getting as much knowledge as possible. And I'm currently going twice a week to Baltimore, to Bar- Baltimore Spirit Company, to work with them on their amazing array of spirits, actually, which is why I chose them, because not only are we doing whiskey, but we've got gins and amaros and liqueurs and things. So I'm getting a, a more broad sort of perspective on distillation.
0: I mean, it sounds so intense. Did you ever imagine when you got into to spirits and drinks, you'd ever get to to do what you're doing right now?
2: Not in this way, but actually when I was first getting into spirits, when I first moved to Florida, I started distilling then. I worked with Dave Pickerel for a little bit up at Pig when he first opened up that distillery. But I was working with a Florida distilling company and they were doing vodka at the time and had wanted to bring in whiskey. So we were exploring what that would look like uh, before I got snatched up by Glenn Fittick. So it was one of those things where I had a path that I and I didn't know which way to go. But I really thought I love scotch. I still love scotch. But I love single malt. How about that? I love, that's what we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that too. And I wanted to be able to work for a company that I didn't think had seen a representative like me before. And not just because I'm a person of color, but because I'm a big nerd who um, really wants to make things accessible.
0: I can vouch for the big nerd part of it. That's for sure. Big (laughs) nerd.
2: (laughs) <laughs> All
0: right, so I want to get into to, to what you're doing Talking about Uncle Nearest in just a second You've kindly sent me a couple of samples And, and Daz has got them as well You know, yeah. we started up Daz and I started off the show Just talking about our, our experiences within American whiskey And one of the things that, that we talk about is We're two Scottish guys, right? I've got a little bit of a relationship with american whiskey after being there for 10 years but i imagine a lot of people listening here will will be chewing in a lot of the time because they've got an interest in scotch whiskey and, and maybe not know that much about american whiskey so let's let's just rewind a little bit and talk a bit about you know the history of of american whiskey which has for me a little bit of a, a tie-in with, with Scotland because you talk about the the clearances that happened in Scotland. And, and at that point, a lot of Scots moved over to the US and took their knowledge of distilling with them, right? Over there. I mean, you look at, I, I think one of the best examples for me is, is Maker's Mark, which I've been to a few times now. And they still, you know, they, they drop the E, they spell it the right way, as opposed to you guys fucking <laughs> it all up. <laughs> it wasn't that, e. it was the Irish did it. It was the Irish, yeah. Let's no, not, wasn't me. Let's not get into that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so I mean, let's let's talk about it from your perspective. Like, distilling it down, pun intended, with regards to to American history, uh, whis- sorry, whiskey history. Let's talk about that.
2: American whiskey history. Abs- the, absolutely, like you said, the Scots-Irish were very involved in our history, and even before that, were the English who came over as pilgrims and brought barley and beer and that sort of practice. Unfortunately, barley didn't grow super well here, so in the mid 1600s, New England rum was actually what was really, really popular in the United States. In the mid 1700s though, the, we got taxed on sugar from from England, and so Americans were like, no, we're not going to do that. Um, And so they started producing rye whiskey. Now we got that rye because of German immigrants who brought rye in from Germany. The rye did very, very well and spread all throughout the East Coast. And it's how we got the term Monagahela rye. So that was really well known in Pennsylvania, but was also in Maryland. Now, the Scots-Irish came in 1715s to 1800s. And they moved into west pennsylvania west virginia some of the carolinas and they were moving out that way now they moved all the way into areas like uh, like kentucky and tennessee and created in like 1783 evan williams was out there 1789 elijah craig and in 1795 jacob beam so some of these really iconic kind of stalwart names within the whiskey industry were already moving over there and in place in the late 1700s in 1775 to 1783 was the Revolutionary War and after the Revolutionary War we had no money so George Washington who was a distiller at the time took the advice of Alexander Hamilton to tax spirits not just whiskey but all spirits however People got really, really upset. They had not been taxed on their their spirits before, and they started. Uh, then they refused to pay. So they started sending the excise men into these cities to collect money. The excise men were tarred and feathered. Their homes were burnt down, and there was a plan for 5,000 men to go to the capital and burn it down. So Washington put a stop to that, and he sent 13,000 troops to end the rebellion, and this was became known as the Whiskey Rebellion. Now, this Whiskey Rebellion created a big move for people to go southwest, continue to going that way, and also it really created the culture of illegal distillation because now people didn't want to pay taxes so they simply were hiding the, the whiskey that they were making. Now, as people moved west, they were able to find cheap labor in slave labor um, and access to waterways. So bourbon really, or whiskey, really started taking off because they also were finding a grain out there that was plentiful and had high starch content, so made really, really wonderful whiskeys, and that was corn. Now the whiskey was very inconsistent and dangerous and the scotsman came to save the day so james c crow in 1823 um, was a scientist from scotland and he came and started working in the, the bourbon and whiskey industry and he implemented cleaning practices checks for ph and sugar levels but most importantly he was able to explain why sour mash process worked it was already being used But we didn't actually know, they didn't know why it was working. So what sour mash is, it's very unique to the United States. Um, Well, no, we've got like Dunder in Jamaica, but anyways. So what it is, is we um, take our grains, we grind them up, we make our, our wash, and then we make our mash, and we stay on grain. So we distill our, most of our whiskeys on grain. So we will take our spent mash, which is those grains that have fallen off that have no alcohol in them, and we will take that, drain it, and we will take the water from that, and we will put that into the new wash for our next batch of whiskey. That will help lower the pH, helps keep consistent flavor, helps save energy on heating and also saves on water. So that's something that we use in most distilleries today. And that was really standardized in 1823 and became a standard of quality, which we still see on labels today. In 1840, bourbon was finally written on a label so that it became kind of you know more legal. Um, and whether or not it's from Bourbon comes from Bourbon, the County, or Bourbon Street, New Orleans, is something that is still something we we all talk about. But more than likely, it's probably the street or some people who are from Bourbon Street, but who knows? So Civil War, 1861 1865, we had a big whiskey shortage. So then after that, as people were starting to build up distilleries, we had a lot of shady characters who were creating a disc taking distillate and putting really gross things in it to make a dark-looking spirit that was um, harsh. And so George Garvin in 1870 created the first uh, whiskey to sell in bottles only. That was Old Forester, only available in bottles. The first bourbon to be sold in bottle only. And in 1897, Colonel Enid Taylor pushed forward the bottles and bond regulations. We can talk about regulations later. Um, around the same time, right around the 1900s, the temperance movement was rumbling and rumbling away. So this was happening all over the world. But in 1920, we went on a national prohibition, no more alcohol, only six distilleries were granted medical license to and continue to distill. But most distilleries closed and smuggling became an incredibly violent and profitable industry. After repeal in 1933, whiskey slowly began to grow into a global industry. And in 1964, we had the Senate pass legislation to make bourbon a distinct product of the United States. Then in 2007, we made September National Bourbon Month and a senator added the term America's Native Spirit. So that's pretty much an overview of American whiskey history. But should we talk a little bit more about regulations? Absolutely, yeah. In the United States, the first consumer uh, safety regulation was actually for alcohol. Um, We had an issue with uh, people refining their whiskey, right? So they were called rectifiers who would take a neutral grain spirit. So a spirit that has been distilled to a very high proof doesn't have much flavor to it. They would find these, these neutral, they'd take these neutral grain spirits and add things like tobacco, leather, Weird chemicals, they would just make this thing that was called whiskey. And these were act, and it actually was starting to put people out of business. It was a really big deal. And in order to ensure that we were actually getting whiskey in our bottles and not some strange, dangerous spirit, the, um, they created the Bottled and Bond Act. So that was actually our very first um, Consumer Protection Act. So Bottled in Bond came along, which was go- which meant that you basically had to age your whiskey for a minimum of four years. It had to be produced at the same w- one distillery in one season. It had to be 100 proof. And basically in Bond also meant that there was going to be a tax guy who was making sure everything stayed inside that warehouse. So it was government controlled to ensure that nothing was adulterated. So that was in 1897. So that was really the first time that we decided, OK, we're going going to control the spirits going to make sure that they're clean we're going to make sure that they're no longer um, doctored by these rectifiers so 1897 we did that but it wasn't until 1864 that we actually came along with the bourbon uh, rules and regulations before that we had our straight whiskey regulation was the 1900s with the food act and that was basically saying so you guys in scotland your whiskey has to be a minimum of three years old here in the united states it's two to be a straight whiskey now, the where that gets kind of confusing is that bourbon has no age regulation. So bourbon could be a minute as long as it's run over a new charred oak. It's bourbon, right? Um, so we use straight whiskey. So I, often, I always tell people when they're looking at their bottles to look for straight to ensure that they are getting nothing that's adulterated. So again, you cannot add any colors or things, flavors to a straight whiskey. And also it has to be aged a minimum of two years, four years if there is no age statement on the bottle at all. Um, So bourbon, which everyone knows and loves, has to be made in the United States. A lot of people like to think that uh, bourbon can only be made in Kentucky and people in Kentucky like to tell you that, but that is absolutely untrue. Please don't believe that. It can be made anywhere in the United States and the territories of the United States, which, I wish we didn't have that, but we do. So you can also make bourbon in Guam or Puerto Rico, which is wonderful. Your bourbon has to be at least 51% corn. It has to be distilled under 160 proof. It goes in the barrel at one highest, 125. Um, You can't add anything but water.
0: And I think it's interesting as well, because now you don't just have bourbons over there. I mean, ryes are big. You've got that nice spicy note coming from the ryes that are getting really really popular. And then single vaults are going through the roof as well. Mm,
2: so that's been exactly. So that's why I um, kind of uh, caught myself earlier and said, I love scotch. It's actually malt, as a grain, I think that it just, I find it very exciting. So when we also talk about straight whiskeys, you don't have to just have a straight bourbon, right? It could be a straight rye, it could be a straight wheat, it could be, that just means that it's at least 51% of that particular grain, but then also you've got all of those safety components of knowing that there was no, no additional flavorings added to that, that it's aged for a certain amount of time. So um, that's really where that plays um, into our categories.
0: And I think it's interesting as well that you guys still use brand new casks.
2: Can yeah, I, so that was, Want to know that so that came about in 1938 that was actually the lumber industry did some lobbying to get that added so prior to 1938, it did not have to be new chart oak, but a lot of of corporations or a lot of uh, whiskey makers did use new chart oak but it actually became legislation because of the lobbying of the lumber industry, which yeah it's all about the money however and it hasn't been changed yeah, so which, that's
0: which is a good <laughs> thing for us in scotland because you know it is 90 of our casks over here come from you guys yes. um, and that you know that that one bit of legislation i think changed scotch whiskey in such a big way and you know possibly was one of the reasons why it's so big as big as it is now because suddenly we had this influx of these amazing casks and I'm a huge ex bourbon fan when it comes to scotch whiskey that's that's what I go for that's my jam the whole time Um, (laughs) so I'm so glad that it changed but you know I've heard rumors recently that that legislation is gonna gonna change and you will be able to use second hand casks is any truth in that
2: I know that that is something that has been discussed. Again, that's more, it's because of environmental issues, yeah. right? We are going through oak and so, so and, and the whiskey industry in the United States is expanding hand over fist. Like we are, it is literally out of control how, how quickly the whiskey industry is growing here. And that use of new charred oak is causing some issues. We are constantly replanting, and everyone that I talked to that is in Uh, That is a cooperage or or somehow involved in the barrel production says that we're, we're okay. Um, We are in trouble kind of at this current point, just because due to COVID, there wasn't as much, um, they weren't able to harvest as many trees, things weren't seasoning. So we are in a little bit of a, a barrel shortage right now. Which if you are a craft distiller who doesn't buy, you know, millions of barrels every year or even hundreds of thousands of barrels every year, you are having a much harder time getting your hands on new charred oak because we just don't have it. But that is not due to supply of trees. That's actually just due to labor. And I think that that will be settling out in the next couple of years. But it is something that I think we're going to have to think of. If we are able to use that secondhand oak, it is going to affect you in Scotland dramatically. But it will also be much better for the earth. So, yeah, uh.
0: absolutely. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I do. I can I, I Selfishly, I hope it doesn't come into effect for Scotland. But Understand. for the earth, I, I hope it does 100 percent. Let's chat, you meant you just you touched there a little bit on craft distilling. That's one of the things I want to talk about with you. I mean, the rise of craft distilling in the US has been monumental. I, it, I think it it started when I moved over there, which was 2010. Um, but I was looking at some stats the other day. I think you've got over 2,000 craft distilleries
2: yep. there now. I think it's almost 2,400 now, yeah. That's insane. Um, so we, it is, it's it's an incredible amount, and I think it's it's just following the same path that it went with craft beer. Uh, it's very, very similar in that you're going to have this great expansion of distilleries, and we've already seen it come down a little bit um, and then re-expand. So what I think happened is, people that now have the knowledge, the people that started in 2010, people like Leopold Brothers, like New York Distilling, people that have been around for more than a decade, they're sharing the knowledge and the gains and and what they've learned as smaller distilleries. They're really extending that forward. And I think that we are having a much better uh, first batch of, of whiskeys and distillates from some of these younger craft distilleries. But one of the things I also, so while craft is a word that I'm also It causes me, It sometimes I'm a little hesitant to use the word craft only because a lot of people associate craft as being small, handmade, you know, very particular about the grains, blah, 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 when that's not necessarily true. A lot of our craft distilleries here also are not distilleries. They are people who are sourcing from MGP, they're sourcing from Wilderness Trail, they're sourcing from Bardstown, so we have a lot of distilleries now that have opened within the last five years, four or five years that are actually quite large, but their only purpose in opening was that they were going to have their own small a brand, but they were going to produce for other non-distiller producers because there's a huge market for that. So there could be, yes. So sorry. I was going to
0: say, just to explain to everyone listening, the distilleries that you mentioned, like M- MGP, these are mm-hmm. massive distilleries that are producing huge amounts of new make spirit or white dog, as you guys call it, and then selling it to other people who are then branding up themselves.
2: Yes, they're also maturing on site too. So you can actually buy aged whiskey, which the price has completely skyrocketed because we so the way that we give licenses is uh, you get a distilled spirits license so that distilled spirits license could be for a distillery or it could be for somebody who's just buying barrels rebottling and selling so we don't necessarily you don't always know whether that's something that's just been bottled or if it's something that's actually been distilled and aged on site one of the, so right now with this growth in this distilleries and people wanting to have their own brand they are all trying to buy aged whiskey, so it's become much harder, much more expensive. And so I know that with Uncle Nearest, we were able to source some really beautiful whiskey. So the 1856, the premium that you have is whiskeys that are, you know, seven to to 16 years old blended in there. And then the the small batch is five to nine years old, but these are still well-aged whiskeys that are blended together in those batches. Whereas now I think it's a little bit more difficult for people to get their hands on that if they haven't already been uh, working with some of these distilleries. But they're gonna be online soon because we've got millions and millions of gallons coming out of these distilleries. We've got over 7.3 million, I believe, coming out of Bardstown uh, Bourbon right now. Wow, that's yeah. crazy.
0: So you just mentioned Uncle Nearest and that's, that's a nice segue, Tracy. It's almost like you've, you've read my notes on this. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I wanna talk about this brand because I know it's something close to your heart, it being is. someone of color within the whiskey industry. This has got a great backstory. So let, let's talk about the, the history of this brand.
2: Yes, so everyone is very aware of Jack Daniels, they are the number one best selling American whiskey in the United States, so they are the biggest. And Jack Daniels was uh, from Lynchburg, Tennessee, and he actually was Jasper um, when he was young, he was one of nine children and his mother passed soon, soon after he was born and his father was having trouble taking care of the family. So Jasper went to work for Dan Call at the Dan Call Farm, which wasn't far from his home when he was about eight, nine years old. He was working as a farmhand. but up the hill, there was a still that was always steaming away, making whiskey, and he kept bothering Dan and asking if he could learn to make whiskey as well. So Dan took him up to the still and introduced him to near screen. Nearest Green was making whiskey. He was known as one of the best whiskey makers in the county and the area. People really, really loved the whiskey from the Dan Call Farm, and uh, near screen taught Jack Daniels how to distill, and so. Uh, the Civil War came. Dan Call actually went off to war. He sold the stills to Jasper, who changed his name to Jack Daniels, created this whiskey industry, created this whiskey company, and hired Nearest Green as his first master distiller. So this enslaved man um, became, once free, the first master distiller for the Jack Daniels distillery. And it's something, it's a history that simply got lost, I guess, around the 60s, 70s. It was something that had in, in Lynchburg, Tennessee, many people knew the families lived together. So the Nearest Green family has actually been, uh, has worked at the Jack Daniels distillery from the moment it opened till today. There has always been an ancestor that works at that distillery.
0: It's an amazing story. And you say it got lost, right? But did it really get lost? Well, and that's... Let's, let's not pull any punches here. I know what it's like in the US. I know what yes, goes on yes, over yes. there. And yes. a lot of Black history... Doesn't get lost; it gets swept under the carpet. Let's face it.
2: It's a race. It is. It is. It is. The intention is often to erase it because, on the other side, so where there is success, often on the other side, people believe there is loss from another race. Where I think there is plenty. We are able to celebrate the success of all races within the United States, but but we also have to understand that the success that was achieved by a lot of people of color was through dire, tremendous trauma. And we cannot just ignore that as well. Mm -hmm. And I think people don't want to talk about the trauma and only wanna celebrate the good things. And we've got to really have that balance because the goodness is that much sweeter because of all that was done, all of the trials and tribulations that it took to get through to achieve. But you're right, it is usually a conscious decision. And we know that this this information was lost. It happened when there were some changes in ownership is what we've heard. Um, but I'm not exactly sure. So also, I don't want to speak on on that. But we do know that that people in Lynchburg, people who were connected with the company, a lot of the relations knew this story. This was a story that was passed. So it's a story that was told like my father-in-law who was from Tennessee, from Nashville, he'd always heard that. He had always heard that a Black man taught Jack Danielson. So like, he just, he's like, we just heard it. It wasn't Something that they knew wasn't something that was in the paper, it was just something that the culture had kind of kept because they were from Tennessee and they were proud of this. And so when this story was actually discovered by Fawn Weaver, well, it was discovered by Clay Reisner, who they found a picture and in the picture, Jack Daniels is sitting and he's actually, but center of the picture is a man of color, a black man. And so the clays basically reached out, tried to figure out what the story was. And they found out that this, uh, that a black man had to Jack Daniels how to distill that this man next to him was his son who actually went with him when he moved the distillery down to the Cape Spring Hollows. And uh, that really inspired Fawn who read this article. She dug a little bit deeper and really started to understand and flesh out this story. And the reason she was able to do that was because Jack Daniels wrote about it, that Jack Daniels talked about to- it about him. He like the name was was actually mentioned in numerous places. Uh, so Jack Daniels wasn't trying to ignore or or erase the um all of the contributions that were made by Nearest Green. He actually recognized them and Nearest Green and his family were some of the wealthiest in Lynchburg, Tennessee at the time. So it's it's just a strange thing how Culture shifts, how we perceive who should be where. And, And so it's very different today, but we are able to look back and say this person, this near screen, was a Black man, an enslaved man who was distilling whiskey. There are very few names that we actually have there were many, many enslaved men and women who were making whiskey, who were slaving, were sweating over those mash tuns, who were you know, moving those barrels. It was a lot, it's an arduous task, especially back then when we didn't have as much of the um, the automation that we have now. It was a difficult task to make whiskey. And we know that Tennessee and uh, and Ohio and Kansas and, and, um, uh, kentucky had a lot of slave ownership so that they would have been using slaves to assist them that to, to make this whiskey and to take on those hard tasks so those names are lost but we do have sometimes just like certain slaves will be pay, have been paid or there have been requests for somebody and we don't know why this particular like john the slave was paid 500 for what we paid 500 for him whereas the going rate was 100. But we know that that person more than likely had more technical knowledge about how to distill and would have been their master distiller. So the first master distiller that we actually know and can name, though, is Nearest Green. And so it's really exciting to be able to have the Uncle Nearest Whiskey and to see the name of a Black man on a bottle of whiskey, because that's the first time. (laughs) It's the first time that's happened, and it's it's incredible and wonderful, and I hope to write my own legacy. I don't need to be, have my name on a bottle, but to write my legacy and to be a person of color who whose face, whose who's visibility inspired others to get into the industry, to bring new palettes, to bring new perspectives, to, because there's more than enough space. And one of the things I, I think we worry about is that, oh, well, if you just start bringing all these people back in, people are gonna lose their jobs it's untrue there's so much expansion there's so much room for all of this diversity in all of these industries and all of these categories that we should just look at it as making everything a little bit better right we're all going to be able to make things a little more exciting a little higher quality and we're just going to have a better whiskey all boats will rise let's just bring in a bring in more people let's do this
0: I love that that attitude Tracy it's great and and, you know after working with you I know for sure you are going to create a legacy for yourself within this industry so I'm really excited to see that so I just tried the 1856.
2: Yes. Which So is... that was the one that has the older casks that we're using. So you should have much more oak influence on that. A it's so
0: of... smooth. I mean, for being 50%. Is
2: that 50 yes. proof or 50 yes. ABV? Yes. That is 100 proof. Wow. 50 ABV. Yes. Yes. I agree actually. This is I really enjoy the 1856. Uh, the 1884, though, is the one that is actually blended. 1856, uh, Victoria Edie Butler has a few insights on, but 1884 is one that she blends each time. So the 1884 is our small batch, and while it's a little younger, that's really because Victoria loves things a little sweet. So Victoria Edie Butler is the great great grand niece of nearest Scree. And she is the master blender for Uncle Nearest Whiskey. So she actually used to work in the prison system and, and uh, in c- correction, but not in prison. Like she actually was doing more legal work and she retired when Fawn was kind of getting the industry, the, the brand started. And Fawn asked if she would like to come together to create the first blend of 1884. The thought was she was going to have each family member blend each batch. So she comes in, she blends it they start sending out this first batch to a to different to competitions and she keeps winning gold. She's winning awards all over with this 1884 batch. And what one of the key things why I can always pick out her 1884 or the 1856 is these caramel notes. She loves, she has a bit of a sweet tooth. So the caramels, those vanillas are really toffee kind of wrapping around more fruit versus the 1856, which has more of that coconut, the baking spices, a little bit deeper, richer um, mm-hmm. palette for me and they are different, but both delicious. So Tracy, let's talk
0: about the future of American whiskey. Where do you see it going? I mean, it's come so far, I'd say in the last 15 years, right? With with this huge craft movement that's gone on, um, I'd say with all the different whiskeys that are out there now as well, the different variants and and, and what's happening, where do you see it going from here?
2: Well, I, what I think that what American Comiskey is one of the most exciting categories right now, and I do think that it's because we've had people come in who weren't coming from the big corporations, who this wasn't their family legacy, or or some who they say it was their family legacy, but maybe they're lying, or maybe they're telling the truth. Who knows? But I think we're coming in with people who had a perspective that was very different, that just wanted to make something that didn't exist before. So one of the things that I'm really excited about right now is what Todd Leopold has done with Leopold Brothers and the Three Chambers still. Do you know about this? No, don't. This is so exciting. So Todd Leopold is an even bigger nerd than I am. Way bigger. He goes through like ledgers from the 1800s because he loves whiskey that much. Well, as he was going through these ledgers, one of the things he realized was that all of the distilleries that existed towards the end of the 1800s had a specific still called the three chamber still. Now they had column stills, they had pot stills, but they also had a three chamber still, especially if they were a rye producer. So he starts digging a little deeper, find, figures out, like, finds some little templates and some drawings of what the three chamber still looks like and decides he's gonna make it. So he actually reaches out to Vendome in Louisville and says, hey, I wanna make this three chamber still. So they come in, they're looking at these drawings and say, we've never made one. We cannot guarantee it will work. He has to sign away his life first to make the still and say, if it doesn't work, you can't blame us. Ah! So he, they make the still and it, work. So if, if you, any of you know, he's actually released the three chamber still rye whiskey. They're using a Brutzi rye, which is a very, very high oils, very volatile, very aromatic rye, which he actually had grown up from seed because he also saw that this was a specific type of rye that was used at that time, but wasn't plentiful in rye whiskey today. So he had that grown up that took almost that alone it took almost five to 10 years, had the still made, which is again happening at the same time. And finally gets to the point where the still's ready, bra is ready, and these, the way it works is you have your mash at the top, and underneath it are these three basically chambers. So not a, not a tray, it's not like a column still. It's basically like an actual bucket or pot stacked on top of each other. So you fill up your warmer, the other three are basically cooking underneath. As every twenty minutes, you empty. So you'll empty from the bottom. That'll go out. That's your spent wash. Close the valve. You open the valve on your next, so your second tray, your next, your next chamber. That will empty down into the bottom. Close the valve. Go to the next. To the next. Right. So then your warm ash will fall into that third. One, two, three are full. Turn that steam back on. And what's happening? is the pressure is building. There is an intense amount of heat. And as the uh, bottom chamber gets all of that heat, all of that vapor, most of the alcohols have already evaporated. So really what you're doing is volatizing oils and flavors that don't usually volatize because they're not under pressure. They don't have this very, very high heat. So we're able to volatize a lot of these oils and fusels that are adding this incredible element of flavor and creating this incredibly rich rye that's not existed in almost a hundred years. It's a lot, It trust. it is very, very floral, it is very perfumey, it's grass, it's, it's an incredible expression of rye. That is a lot on its own. But what they did back then was mixed it with a lower uh, aromatic, a, a much lower texture, column still rye. So George Dickel happens to be experimenting with Column still rye. Nicole Austin is trying to create a delicious rye. And Todd calls and says, Hey, do you know anyone making a light rye that I can mix this three chamber with? And so they've come up and actually have a collaboration with George Dinkle and Leopold Brothers that's creating this amazing combination of rye that I think is one of the most exciting things I've tasted in a long time.
0: Cool. Talking about the, the the distillation side of things in the US, what about wood? What are you guys up to? I mean, we chatted briefly about this law may change, right? Which would be, yes. a, be a huge factor. I mean, you could uh, imagine being able to put uh, any kind of American whiskey into a seasoned cast straight off the bat. I mean, that could be massive, right?
2: Well, actually, so you can. So there are certain whiskeys, so corn whiskey, and even if you were just to say whiskey, so you could use uncharred. It's just that again like I tell people look for straight so that would so that you can't put straight on your label if it's not new charred oak so most people want that to ensure that quality element but if you're making a corn whiskey and then the big fight is with American single malts right so they are to put you know straight on their on their label they have to use this new oak but we know that malt really expresses beautifully in a used cask so we have some distilleries that are making a single malt that is in those used casks that's fantastic but we have some using new oak and in Westland, not only are they using new oak so westland is in seattle they are using local oak so using uh the oregon oak which is incredible we've got people that are bringing in mizunara i've got people that are um using canadian oak so really that exploration of types of oak is also happening but i think the the finishing of oak is uh, finishing in different cast is also happening and i think it would be exciting to see what happens if we're using reusing oak so uh, um mixers their american whiskey is done in a used cask and it's beautiful it's a beautiful expression because you're really getting all of those beautiful uh the the core notes have kind of become creamy and buttery and you're not overwhelming that with the oak spice. And I really enjoy that whiskey. And I think that we're going to have even more expressions coming out once we have that law change that are going to really alter what we think of as the base or the innate profile of American whiskey, which tends to be all from oak flavored components, right? Like we always think about what's coming, like it's all the, the lactones, the coconut, the vanillas, the cinnamons, the baking spice, that is what we think of when we think of American whiskey. The grain isn't able to shine quite as much because of the the new oak, so it would be exciting
0: all right Tracy well thank you so much for your time and your little insight into American whiskey it's absolutely fascinating it's It's great to see how much knowledge you now i mean you had it already with regards to American whiskey, but I mean unbelievable now how much you 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 have and great to see you flourish in this new role
2: thank you so much it's a real honor to be able to to have this position to be able to travel the united states and and speak to different people and learn what they love about the category what's important to them about the whiskeys that they're creating and to be able to embrace that and think about how i would maybe create my own and what are my priorities in this industry and i see
0: a few scotch whiskeys still lurking behind there in your collection so i'm assuming you're still a fan you're going to come over and visit and hopefully soon so we can have a have a few drams together
2: I can't wait. I miss you very much, and look forward to being back into Scotland, one of my favorite places to be.
0: Yeah, really cool to chat to to Tracy. Very proud of her actually for what she's doing. Um, you know, it's to to see her doing that and be the first person of color to get that position of of what she's doing within there. It's it's amazing to see.
1: Yeah, it's cool, man. I mean, I know a couple of people over there in, in the states who work in American whiskey and. Um, it's such a big category, you know, and with so much to say, uh, it's brilliant when you've got people like her that can communicate that story brilliantly, you know, and if she's smashing down barriers at the same time, then happy days. Well, it was great to catch up. Super cool to be chatting all things American whiskey. I think we should revisit this one. I, I think we should go back, especially now that you're starting to get some freebies from these distilleries that I'm not Um your your Woodford Reserves and such like, and um, and also look if anyone's listening and who wants to hear a little bit more about American whiskey, look we can certainly schedule in a few more guests and things to dash into mash bills and char levels and you know all that wonderful stuff. And you know I'm I'm sure we can bump into a few people who really really do know their things.
0: You know as well as Mitch knows his arse from his elbow. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> wow. I'm getting a little bit of aggression from you today. I think, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, you turn into the angry man now. You're, oh, the, you're the angry man of the show. You next. know why? It's because
1: you've spent all week in Porto or Lisbon or wherever it is you have been, and I've been stuck in rainy Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> you've been in Fife. I've been in Fife, exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> no, it was a cool episode, man. It was, it was just nice catching up with Tracy again and, you know, mm. uh, doing all that with her. So that, that was really cool. And thank you to you guys for listening. Um, please sign up to our mailing list on our website. Not another whiskey podcast.com. And please don't forget to give us a little rating on iTunes or Spotify. If you're listening to to us on that right now, it takes two seconds to do. We really would appreciate it. But anyway, guys, until next week, may all your whiskeys be as smooth as one of Daz's ass cheeks after he's been for his monthly Brazilian wax.